2: Richard Wheeler, who we believe was the mastermind of the robbery at Chicken Man's house, seemed to have gotten away with the perfect heist. But then bodies started showing up dead from Atlanta to New York. Houston Hammonds was busted on another charge, and Fast Eddie Parker was nowhere to be found. And who had all of the stolen cash and jewelry? Had Fast Eddie Parker connected with Wheeler and split the rest of the take? One thing was certain: Frank Moten and the Council of Twelve would ultimately retaliate.
3: Then they told me, "Oh, did you hear about the boys getting killed in Brooklyn? Since I'm here, and their dad, they already did good."
4: They were investigating. They were watching him. You know, my dad was being investigated because he was hot on the radar there.
3: Listen, man, I don't want to talk to the police. Period. Okay? I went to the people and told them what happened. The people want the money now. Nah. Bring me the head of
4: the man who did. My dad said, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. My dad didn't want to be involved in no homicide.
2: From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Fight Night. I'm Jeff Keating. In the late 60s and early 70s, There was a huge influx of cocaine and heroin into black communities across the country. Drug dealers had plenty of product and money in their possession. This would have been a great opportunity for hustlers who were stick-up guys to rob them. One of those stick-up hustlers was Richard Wheeler. They called him Cadillac Richie for his car of choice. We spoke with a former girlfriend who wanted to remain anonymous and not be recorded. After this story, you might understand why. We'll call her Easy Trigger for the case of the story. Easy described Wheeler as wildly handsome and that he moved with the fluidity of a dancer. She said they met in the mid-60s while he was in the Air Force stationed in the Pacific Northwest. Wheeler and his friends would take their weekend furloughs in Vancouver, Canada, where they met Easy Trigger. They reconnected in Harlem a few years later, when Wheeler was moving up the gangster ladder. He was into everything from the numbers racket to drugs, but his crime of choice was armed robbery. He was known simply as the stick-up man. He liked to hire Vietnam vets as his gunners and bodyguards. He frequented high-end clubs like the Village Vanguard, where John Coltrane used to play as well as the Plaza Nine, which was in the Plaza Hotel. Some of his early stick-up jobs involved using a young woman like Easy Trigger, posing as a prostitute so they could gain access to the drug dealer's crib. When the dealer would answer the door, Richard would rush in the door with a pistol and rob the place. Some of the earlier jobs brought in about 30000 in cash, but after they would split the take and with the way they would blow through the money, they would need another job within a week or so. Cadillac Richie advanced into larger crews and ran hold-ups with his top enforcer, Fast Eddie Parker. Fast Eddie was a killer and kidnapper. As we said in Episode 7, we think Fast Eddie was the muscle at the front door of the robbery, holding the three fifty-seven with a silencer, and we imagine he was in charge during the heist. Frank Moten said, There was nothing Robin Hoodie about these cats. They were rough. They took care of people who gave them trouble, and there was quite a long list. Easy told me about one of the bigger holdups that he and his crew staged. They rented a house on Long Island and spread the word about a big gambling party. They picked up hustlers in New York with cabs and limousines and dropped them off at the party house miles away. Unsuspecting, these hustlers walked into a holdup. It took under an hour to collect all the jewelry and cash. Wheeler, Parker, and the crew drove away. The hustlers were left stranded because no one knew the address.
3: Well, he told me where he pulled a similar robbery in New York years earlier, and they all
2: suspected him. Easy said he would just laugh and laugh whenever he was counting all the money and jewelry they stole. When Easy asked if he was scared that they would retaliate... Richard would just scoff and say, what are they gonna do? Richard Wheeler arrived in Atlanta for the Ali-Corey fight with Fireball on the same day as Frank Moten. In one interview, Chicken Man says that he was surprised to see that Richard had one of those fancy invitations to the party at his house.
3: My instructions from from the people who did uh, use the house not for me not to tell nobody that line I didn't
2: invite nobody. Chicken Man was picking up Frank Moton from the airport and as a favor gave Fireball and Richard a ride to the Biltmore Hotel. Along the way, according to Chicken Man, they stopped at the varsity for some hot dogs. While they were there, Richard noted that the varsity would be an easy target for a robbery.
3: So when we get to the vicinity, the boy was with Fireball and said, man, this would be a hell of a place to rob.
2: Seems like he had that in his blood. In saying this about their hometown, Richard pissed off Chicken Man and Frank Moten. They must have said something to Richard about it. Chicken Man reported that Richard flew back to New York City the day of the fight.
3: The fellow that, that I met at the airport with Fireball... He came to the house one time. He came and the day of the fight, he left. And he went back to New York and told some people even that I know that me and him had had some words.
2: Richard Wheeler was still unknown to Frank Moton and the Council of Twelve. We tried to piece together what happened to him the night of the robbery. We know he was with his girlfriend Jackie who we spoke about in Episode 6. She said after they watched the closed-circuit showing of the ali Quarry fight at Madison Square Garden, they went to a fancy party at the Americana Hotel near Times Square in New York City. Jackie remembered plainclothes cops and feds attending the party because they got a tip that several mob members would be there. One of the feds came up with a flash camera trying to get a picture of everyone and she remembered Wheeler ducking down to tie his shoes right before the flash went off. Jackie always wondered what the police thought when they developed those photos, and it was just her big smiling face in the picture. One night, a few weeks after the heist, she heard his booming laugh in the bedroom. She went to check it out and saw a newspaper article about the holdup lying on his bed. He kept laughing louder and louder and Wheeler implied what he had done. Jackie said it made him laugh the loudest when he imagined everybody lying down there on the basement floor. A few months after the robbery, Chicken Man had cleared his name with Frank Moten and other high-level gangsters, but the heat from the press and the police did not go away. As a hustler, being in the spotlight is just not good for business. And unfortunately, he paid a price for even hosting the party. Here's Gordon Williams Jr. talking about the consequences of that event.
4: After the fight, after he got cleared, after he convinced everybody it wasn't him, he went back to his business. He went back to the business of selling the cocaine and stuff. Well, they were investigating him. They were watching him. You know, my dad was being
2: investigated because he was hot on the radar then. And this is Chicken Man talking about his experience at the beginning of
3: 1971. So, as the month flowed on by, and the early January it came up, that robbery took a toll because I was busted for cocaine. But the funny thing is how it happened, I had had a date with a girl, and I had went in a hotel room on Fulton Industrial Boulevard. I kept my little ice and all that with whiskey and stuff to the hotel room, but I got a little, what they call, a a half of a joint of smoke, of marijuana, and left it in the hotel room, in the ashtray, some kind of way. I came down in the room about ten o'clock in the morning. I'm going to play golf, so I go out. In my car parked under the counter right in front of the house. The inn. But well, as I head toward Industrial Boulevard, the state trooper pulled in. And when the state trooper pulled in, he was pointing at me. Get that car! Get that car! He whooped around, so he come out. Now, I, this time, I do have in my possession some drugs, but I took it and threw it out the window.
4: And they were trying to pull him over. And he took the cocaine, a whole kilo, to the cocaine and opened it and started throwing it just started trying to empty it out the window. The cocaine flew back into the window on the back seat of the car. So after my dad had emptied all the, the whole key load out, he pulled over and he asked him, hey, what's the problem, officer? And they said, well, you know, we need you to step out of the car. And he said, for what? I haven't done anything. And they told him, look at your back seat. And the back seat was covered with white powder.
3: So the police said it looked like a gunshot or something. I thought so much co- cocaine out the window, it looked like a fog or a smoke or something. So that wasn't that hard for the GBI to believe because they thought I, had, I was doing that kind of business. And the newspaper came out and they spoke about the cocaine, but they talked more about the robbery than they did yeah. the cocaine. They associate the busted publicity and all this, they associated with the robbery.
2: Several law enforcement agencies had been keeping a close tab on Chicken Man and trying to catch him doing any illegal activities. When they finally busted him, it didn't take long for the gavel of justice to come down hard.
3: I got caught in January. I was out on bond about three weeks. I was tried in March and went to the the penitentiary. I mean, just that fast. Okay, they wouldn't even give me a
2: or bond. Chicken Man was sentenced to seven years in the state penitentiary. He served most of that time at Stone Mountain Correctional Institute, just east of downtown Atlanta. Here's Gordon Williams Jr. talking about how tough the confinement was for his father.
4: Me and my mom, we're going to visit almost every weekend because he's crying for some attention. He don't like being incarcerated because my dad is so used to going all the time. So he didn't like the idea of being incarcerated the way he was.
2: When he was sentenced, Chicken Man had large red OC letters on his prison uniform. They stood for organized crime. This confounded him because he never put himself in that category of criminals. Chicken Man always thought of himself as a hustler. After a few months, he received a surprise visitor. J.D. Hudson's partner in the robbery investigation, Detective Joe Amos.
3: I was coming there, and um, he had some FBI's with him. There were three of them. I said, "Listen, man, I don't want to talk to the police. Period. Okay?" Then they told me, "Say, oh, did you hear about the boys getting killed in Brooklyn?" I said, "What boys?" So they showed me the clip, yeah, that happened. So they showed it to me. So I said, "I wish I'd been the one to pull the trigger." But since I'm here and they're, dying, they're dead, they already did good. They thought I was in an organized crime. But uh, I explained to the police, I had no knowledge about it. I didn't talk to them about none of that, but after they told me about the boys that got killed, I said, good.
1: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
2: Richard Wheeler was one of the empty seats at the fight, along with Barbara Smith, who never got to leave the house. Frank Moten reported to George Plimpton that Richard made himself a little too visible at a few clubs in New York City that night, even attending that closed-circuit screening at Madison Square Garden. For Frank, this gave him reason to suspect Richard's involvement in the robbery. Furthermore, as Plimpton relates in the story the Black Mafia had figured out who was the mastermind and put a hit on Richard Wheeler and Fast Eddie Parker. That hit fell apart when the guy they hired to carry it out was killed in a shootout with police in New York City. The Black Mafia then approached Fast Eddie Parker to carry out the hit on his boss, Richard Wheeler. At the time, Richard was living with his girlfriend Jackie. Here's how Jackie tells it to George Plimpton. Fast Eddie and another guy showed up at Richard's house to help him with an errand one morning. They all got into a car driven by Richard's chauffeur, a guy named Stefan. She thinks Fast Eddie Parker sat behind Richard and shot him in the head as soon as the car started down the road. And that his accomplice shot Stefan in the head as well. Dead. Dead. Stefan plowed the car into a storefront just down the street from Richard's house. Fast Eddie Parker and his accomplice jumped into a car they had parked around the corner, the very same one that Richard had given Fast Eddie a week before. In early 1972, police arrested Fast Eddie Parker and charged him with a whole string of crimes from Georgia to New York. Jackie and Frank Moten reported that he had several hand grenades in his black bag at the time of his arrest. Early on during his prison term, Chicken Man was able to leave the prison for work details. Sentencing and prison guidelines obviously hadn't yet been pressured by the law and order swing that happened through the Nixon, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton years. Here's Chicken Man and J.D. in 2003 talking about seeing each other on a public golf course at Atlanta's Piedmont Park while Chicken Man was still serving time.
3: We almost played golf together one day. Almost one day, yeah. You you had a Pete My Park. Yeah. And I was out there playing golf. Yeah. And you were in prison. Yeah. He was out on the prison uniform, but he was out there chipping golf balls around. And we stopped and talked. Yeah. He was uh serving his prison time on the golf course. Chipping and putting Yeah. Had a Pete Park. How to Pete My Park. <laughs> serving his prison time. Yeah, that's some kind of story. The ways of the world, the ways of the world.
2: Billy McKinney was elected to the Georgia State House of Representatives in 1974. He was one of the first black police officers in Atlanta in the late 1940s, along with J.D. Hudson. Like J.D., he knew Chicken Man from the streets. He was always a law and order guy, a firebrand public speaker. One day, he saw Chicken Man driving a truck around Stone Mountain, Georgia, and he called the prison to get Chicken Man back inside the walls.
4: Billy McKinney saw my dad driving and called in and told him that I just saw Chicken Man driving a truck in Stone Mountain. He tried to get my dad to ship to another prison way down south because he don't think that my dad should be out driving. He should be doing some hard time they changed my dad's job detail so they didn't let him drive out no more they took the privilege away from him and they locked him down and i think he started working in the kitchen or something like that that's where he met doug pierce and they became good friends in prison
2: and out even in prison chicken Man still had to support his family
4: so while he was in prison my dad still wanted to make money. He still, I, I still got to make me some money.
2: Always a hustler, Chicken Man arranges for someone to bring him a pound of marijuana a week to prison. The guy dropped it off in a trash can near the prison gates. His new jailhouse friend, Doug Pierce, picked it up while on garbage duty, and the two of them would break it up, roll it into joints, and sell to other prisoners for a dollar a joint. Inside prison just as out. Chicken Man was always able to make it as a hustler. In February 1975, Frank Moten, known as the Black Godfather, was arrested in New York and charged with running a $2 million gambling operation in Atlanta. Such was the reach of the Black Mafia. In November 1976... He was also convicted of conspiracy for importing and selling 150 pounds of cocaine and 26 pounds of heroin from 1968 to 1975. In January 1977, Frank Moton was sentenced to 25 years in prison. At the sentencing, according to the New York Times, Judge Richard Owen said Frank Moton had been, and I quote, the leader of the Council of Twelve and responsible for decision-making at the highest level for black organized crime, end quote. Frank Moten gave his interview to George Plimpton while in prison. One of the last things they talked about was the aftermath of the million-dollar heist. Moten said, People were very upset. Their egos were involved. They had been pushed around. A guy had even tumbled down the stairs. When they got together, it wasn't surprising how it turned out. Then Plimpton asked him, do you suppose there were meetings to decide what was going to happen and how to coordinate things? I don't know, Frank said. Didn't mean much to me. I just lost some credit cards. I'm just a cocoa distributor. Ultimately, the Fight Night team concludes that Frank Moten And his higher-ups had called a guy named Fireball to plan a party to celebrate Tobe's birthday after the Muhammad ali jerry Quarry fight on October 26, 1970 in Atlanta. They wanted a Vegas-style gambling party. Fireball got Chicken Man to host it since he had all these properties all over town. And they were all tight. They ran in the same circles and even financed each other. There was definitely hierarchy, though and Frank Moten was as high up as you can go. Richard Wheeler, we believe separately, planned to rob the party when he saw the invitations, having pulled off similar robberies like this in New York. There's a chance that Cadillac Ritchie connected with Emerson Dorsey to recruit the local Atlanta-area gangsters who pulled off the robbery under Fast Eddie Parker's guidance. Those people were McKinley Rogers... James Henry Hall Houston Hammonds Lillian Dabney Baby Ray Humphrey and Charles Lee Most of those folks were dead by 1972 except for Houston Hammonds Final retribution came early in 1972 when Richard Wheeler was assassinated by Fast Eddie Parker who was then in jail by the end of the year It's possible that Frank Moten And the other members of the Council of Twelve called in that hit. Remember, this is how it all started back in Episode 1. So when did the investigation end? You want the truth? When everybody was dead. dead, dead.
1: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
2: After the robbery investigation concluded, J.D. returned to his duties as a lieutenant in the APD. He worked his way up the ladder and eventually became a captain. Then in the mid to late 70s, he was offered a new career path. Here he is telling Chicken Man about it in 2003.
3: I went from captain to the head of the Department of Corrections. I was a captain and uh, I was reluctant to take the job because I wanted to be an assistant chief, a deputy chief or something, you know? Mm-hmm. That was what I wanted to be at that time, you know, because hell, I didn't know what this job meant. Mm-hmm. The title of that job, I believe at that time, was superintendent of the prisons. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the mayor and uh, even Emma Donnell and Q.B. Wheaton say, hey man, you will be the same to mm-hmm. corrections the chief of police is to police. Ah. I said, ah, That's a give me the job. Yeah. So it was, a, it was. I was appointed four years, like the chief was. Yeah. It was a four-year appointment. Yet he had more problems getting reappointed out of it. Yeah, because I got reappointed with, without any problems.
2: Ingrid Wells was a cop in DeKalb County in Atlanta for a number of years, and then worked for J.D. Hudson for much of the time he was in corrections. Here she is talking about J.D. and his relationships with the inmates. One
3: of the things that I admired about him. All throughout the time I knew him as an employer was he would not let you hurt or harm one of those inmates. He'd tell you in a minute, I've heard him tell so many people you're two paychecks from being where he is. Don't you ever say anything other than him? And so they all respected him.
2: J.D. Hudson remained the director of prisons in Atlanta for 19 years, and that's where he finished out his career. Chicken man made several deals while he was serving time, having someone bring him in marijuana to the prison so he could sell it. He saved up a nice little nest egg before he was released. I guess by the
4: time he got out he had about six grand so he had him enough to get you know a start and get on his feet. Chicken
2: Man was sentenced to seven years, what Gordon Jr. calls a five and two meaning a five-year sentence for cocaine concurrent with a two-year sentence, for the half-the-joint police found in his hotel room. He ended up serving about 36 months as he was a model citizen in prison with very little discipline. And what does a hustler do when he gets out of prison? He goes back to hustling.
3: When I got out, I was determined. Uh, I don't know what I was determined to do, but anyway, I started back to hustling. I get out and I meet a guy. So he'll me to the marijuana. And me and him started working with the marijuana, and I meet a fellow that really liked me in Miami. Then I started getting trailer loads, truck loads, and 5,000 or 8,000 pounds of marijuana at the same time.
4: But he's real careful about what he does now. Yeah. So, you know, like, he never drives drugs, so he's always employing somebody. And his big thing was, whenever you're driving my drugs, and a lot of people don't know they're driving drugs, you don't drink and you don't smoke. That's forbidden. You're gonna do the speed limit? He's paying him good. I'm gonna give you five hundred dollars to drive his car from Florida, you drive the speed limit, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you ain't got no key to the trunk, you get the car
2: to Atlanta and you get your money. Chicken Man was right back into hustling when he got out, and he used this Miami connection as well. Doug Pierce, the guy he met in prison, had gotten out and apparently married a rich woman in Miami. So Chicken Man kept that relationship going. And on one particular trip that he made to Miami, he took his son, Gordon Jr., with him. They had a car loaded with marijuana ready to come back to Atlanta. They stayed in Miami one extra night, leaving the parked car at Doug Pierce's house. In the morning, Gordon Jr. was ready to get on the road. Because I was his driver.
4: I said, Dad, we're leaving. We went to Doug's house to pick the marijuana up. It was gone. It was gone. A 1,000 pounds of marijuana was gone. Vanished. So Doug said that somebody had broken in stolen marijuana.
3: The white boy claimed he had moved it from one place to another place to save for some reason, but it hadn't told me.
2: Chicken Man takes a trip to Miami as he's done a number of times and gotten thousands of pounds fronted to him. He stored it overnight at Doug Pierce's house. Without telling Chicken Man... Doug moved it to another location, then the next day claimed it was stolen overnight. Now, Chicken Man had to go to his suppliers and tell them what happened.
3: I went to the people and told them what happened. The people said, listen, I don't want to hear the story. Get the money and then tell me the story. I don't want to hear no fucking story about nobody. That, you know, this, is what the, this is what the people who sold me the way I to So now we're on the chase to find the people with the earth. My tar was $536,000. Now I got to start paying the debt, right? I got a 32-foot boat, a sleep eight, and everything in Florida. So the master list is going, I don't want to hear the story. Then they give me the ultimatum. Bring me the head of the man who did it in the paper bag. And it did is clear. The
4: people that my dad got the marijuana from they say, you don't have to pay it back. Just give us Doug's name. Give us his address. And we'll settle it just like that. And these people say, all we need is his name. And we you don't have to pay a penny. My dad said, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. My dad didn't want to be involved in no homicide.
3: And the people want the money. now. Nah. They want to give me like 50 kilos of cocaine or something to make the money to pay but I was always, I, I didn't want to be bothered, okay, period, okay. So, but what I did, a man come to me, a, a, a Cuban girl, my son married her daughter, which is a Cuban girl. She come to me one day, we can help me get some folks. He tell me to go get a big truck, on a big one now. And the man comes in here and gave me 8,000 pounds of the scale, the it was Columbia, when the birds were like this here. So I had the biggest break of my life.
2: As the audio was breaking up there, Chicken Man was telling the story about taking the marijuana he'd been given as a lifeline to pay the debt he owed the Colombians, who gave him the marijuana that was stolen from or by Doug Pierce. Chicken Man sold the marijuana in Atlanta, got about $400,000 for it, and he had to give it all to the Colombians to pay back the debt, including his 38-foot boat.
4: We got on a plane to Miami, me and my dad. And he had in a briefcase, in a briefcase, almost $500,000.
3: I gave him everything, right? But anyway, I paid the debt. Just paid in full. But the man come along, gave me them 8,000 pounds, saved my life.
2: Once Chicken Man paid off this final debt, he got out of the life for good. Over the years... Chicken Man would remind me that he never carried a gun, because the last thing he wanted was to be involved in a murder. When Doug Pierce, who he thought was his friend, stole more than a half a million dollars worth of drugs, Chicken Man was forced to decide between his own life or the man who betrayed him. Through a stroke of good luck, Chicken Man was able to honor the code he lived by and somehow... Survive another close call. But this final deal forced him to make a decision that would transform him completely and, in his mind, finally bury the legend of Chicken Man forever.
0: Fight Night is a joint production from iHeartRadio, Will Packer Media, and Doghouse Pictures in association with Psychopia Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keating. Executive producers are Will Packer, James Lopez, Kenny Burns, Dan Bush, Lars Jacobson, and Noel Brown. Supervising producer is Taylor Shacoin Story editors are Noel Brown and Dan Bush. Written by Jeff Keating and Jim Roberts. Edited by Matt Owen. Mixing and sound design by Jeremiah Kulani Prescott. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players. Additional music by Ben Lovett. Audio archives courtesy of WSB News, Film, and Videotape Collection. Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia Libraries. Special thanks to Dr. Maurice Hobson and David Davis.
2: Fight Night is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
1: podcasts.